0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wealth Tech Show. As ever, we're going to discuss the technology that's changing the world of wealth management and financial advice. Uh, I've lined up a very interesting interview today with Sean Millie, a specialist in helping business leaders to understand tech innovations such as artificial intelligence and data. In fact, she's written a best selling book on AI, which is quite simply called The AI Book. So, Sean, welcome. And secondly, uh, that book title, what was your inspiration for With <laughs> Were there months of ruminations uh, over that yes, one? Yes,
1: it was a very creative process. Uh, but what I should say, actually, Ian, is that I didn't write that whole book. In fact, the best thing about that Just book... Just the title? Was, yeah, no, I did more than that. I did more <laughs> than really that. that, honestly. Couldn't help myself. Not guilty as charged. Um, <laughs> the best thing about that book, actually, was that I, I had the idea that AI in financial services, and there is a very long strap line that talks hmm. about visionaries and okay. investors and innovators and stuff, um, but it was crowdsourced actually from a global oh, wow. audience, okay. um, and truly diverse as well. Um, because as you know, in the AI sector and the tech sector in general, and financial services actually, there's a real diversity issue, gender, race, you mm-hmm. name it. And because I was a, I structured that product and I was a co-editor, we were able to be really I guess, structured about making sure that we had diversity of thought and ideas and perspective, but also all those other things that are really so important. So it was global. There were Mm -hmm. women writing about AI in financial services. Shock, horror. Uh, Yeah, I'll Um, believe it when I see it. (laughs) I'm surprised you haven't bought the copy yet, Ian. And when you do, obviously, I will be very happy to sign it for
0: you. (laughs) Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Anyway, look, thank you for joining us. Um, me being a bit cheekier side, uh, I'd like to focus on on your work. Um, and there's lots that you do. So to start, I know you're you you've been co-chair of Finclusion 2021, which is uh, run by Tech Nation. So Sean, can can you actually enlighten us on what you're doing at Tech Nation generally, and and also tell us more about Finclusion 2021 as well.
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, Tech Nation convenes groups of um, volunteers from established firms and Greenfield um, innovating businesses as well. And I'm part of a group that's called On the InsureTech Board, but I'm also, by virtue of that, part of the FinTech Delivery Panel. Sorry, guys, there's a lot of you know labels flying around here. And so the FinTech Delivery Panel is chaired by Eileen Burbage, who many of your um, listeners will, will recognise as a name, really very active in venturing and, and in financial services. And so this year, what what Tech Nation wanted to do and the FinTech Delivery Panel wanted to do was to do something very specifically about FinTech's role in financial inclusion. It happens to be one of my passion areas, but one of the reasons it's one of my passion areas is because I think it's a massive driver for change, innovation, and frankly, growing new businesses in financial services. So, yes, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm co-chair of that um, initiative, um, with uh, supported very ably and with the nitty-gritty by Victoria and Ravi, who are part of the Tech Nation. Mm-hmm. They're actually paid by Tech Nation. I'm not. Um, and so what's happened is uh, we had a pr- very full programme of activities in, in November, and all of that stuff, most of it was recorded, most of it's downloadable on the Tech Nation Inclusion microsite. And actually some of that activity is going to continue into December and, and into 2022 as well, we hope. So there are a couple of projects um, that I think your your listeners will be really interested in actually. And if I can just name just one.
0: Oh, go on, yeah, just, one, just one Yeah, just one.
1: So um, <laughs> you may be familiar with a company called FinTrail um, and they are revolutionizing really um, financial crime um, methods and controlling financial crime mm-hmm. for financial services organizations. And um, as James Nurse, one of the, one of the leaders there, um, said to me just yesterday, actually, Ian, and, and it kind of it, it kind of made sense, but it also kind of really made me take a step back. Was in his belief, the way that we have to execute financial controls and protect against financial crime now, is the single biggest blocker to financial inclusion. So. What FinTrail um, have done and are going to be talking a bit more about um, towards the end of this year, but also into 2022, is a new code of principles that they're proposing. Um, based on research and, and work that they've done with lived experience um, experts, as well as financial services organisations, to kind of uh, create, a, yeah, it's a set of principles, something that we can say, let's let's yes, let's protect our businesses and our customers against financial crime, but let's not do it in a way that contributes to really what is already an architecture of exclusion to my mind um in financial services so i think being able to get access to this kind of thinking in a relatively low time cost way for professionals i e through listening to podcasts um dialing into conferences checking out posts i'll be posting listener on this um, <laughs> um um on the pledge just because you know to spread this and james um i was saying to james i think you would you know hesitate to suggest another interview e for you, Ian, but i think i think it would be something that you yeah. would find really interesting as well i do take recommendations if anyone's listening
0: yeah yep. let's do it yeah mm-hmm.
1: so th- i think that's one example where this this finclusion campaign hasn't just brought hopefully brought fintech's role in in financial inclusion into a wider audience and given people tips and insights and hopefully inspiration but it's actually also opened my eyes um, to something that I was kind of aware of, but I hadn't really appreciated the impact. So you can be constructing something. I'm sure you feel mm. the same. You can be constructing something and shaping narratives, but also always learning as well. Oh, so. for sure.
0: Yeah, that, that's a big part of this job as well. I mean, this, with a podcast, for instance, I can't claim to know everything about every area of tech. I mean, the recent episode I had on NFTs was enlightening for me as much you know as much I can try and weigh in with some big opinions it's it's not easy so I think we're all we're all kind of learning on the job though aren't we because there's there's yeah. such a wide world of technology so to be an expert on all of it is is, is someone possible yeah, yeah
1: I agree with you totally
0: yeah so with tech nation anyway just just to clear up I think a lot of people will be familiar with tech nation but but not not all of our listeners what's what's its relationship with the government because I understand it's, it's government funded right
1: yeah that's correct so my understanding is that it's funded directly by treasury and it's part of the government's Approach to supporting competitiveness in the tech sector for the UK. Mm-hmm. Remember Khalifa talked about that as one of the the crown jewels of the UK economic world, mm-hmm. I guess, UK PLC. So yeah, Tech Nation is a, yeah, it's our money, right, as taxpayers that is funding Tech Nation's activities. But I think the really important thing, and, and it, it is, you know, it is an important distinction to make, is that, yes, it's about... Um, all of financial services, but their focus really, I think, their, their expectation is that they're really there to help grow and scale new tech-enabled businesses. And it doesn't mean that the, the other members of the ecosystem, the established firms, aren't really important, but it, there is a, competitive agenda, a competitiveness agenda there, Ian, which is absolutely fine, but it's not the entirety, for me, for example, as a sort of activist in, in financial inclusion.
0: Mm -hmm. and financial inclusion obviously is a a massive challenge Uh, you know there's there's so many people don't receive access to financial services as we know Uh, so for the people listening in and again it's our typical listener is across the wealth management or financial advice space but they might also be product providers they might even be asset managers you know it's quite a broad church what advice would you have for uh, you know helping these people to make their services more inclusive and what are the big challenges that we currently have
1: So um, I I think we've talked before, haven't we, um, about the inclusive tech. So what do we mean by that? Well, we mean by that things that enable people living with deafness to actually um, be able to partake of your documentation and and, um, other ways of of engagement. People living with um, sight impairment as well. There's all kinds of really brilliant, really actually quite simply applicable tech through APIs, um, which means you don't have to redesign your legacy systems, hurrah. Um, yeah, because that's a major blocker, right? But mm-hmm. but there's a whole suite of, of of purposeful businesses that are creating this accessible tech. So there's that one kind of accessibility 101, inclusion 101 thing that I think that all firms should really be making part of their tech stack, making part of their IT strategy. It should be de rigueur, it should be just like having a statement on modern slavery at the bottom of your website, right? So I think there's that. What I also think, though, um, we know, don't we, that lots of the narrative around inclusion is is kind of making a, not even a hypothesis, it's making a straight line to automation and the use of AI. And, and what I would say there is my experience of, of being embedded, particularly in insurance and insure tech since 2008, is, as I was saying to you, Ian, um, a couple of moments ago before before we started i think there are some really key lessons there to be drawn from the the growing pains if you like of what we've seen in industries like insurance but also in the first and second waves of fintechs yes Mm -hmm. so the uncritical adoption of technologies is a dangerous route to go down so you know, facial recognition is the poster child in my mind, really, for a technology that was kind of the enthusiasm about what you could do and the hypotheses around what you should be able to do. With yeah.
0: That. Uh, yeah. My, my understanding is that it's kind of racially discriminative and generally not working that well. Totally. And there's also the whole idea of people having, well, being tracked wherever they go and losing, you know, control of their own privacy and even data to some extent, if if your face can be considered data, but...
1: It is considered data, and in fact, just yesterday, the UK um, ICO, Information Commissioner's Office, brought out a potential, um, a prospective judgment. There's a different word for it, and I can't remember what it is, but it's basically saying giving notice to the world and to Clearview AI that the data that they've gathered over a number number of years and that they've used and sold and embedded and tr- used, other people have, have used in their training sets, for example, in AI, fundamentally breaks GDPR and other data protection mm-hmm. failures is what mm-hmm. they call it, euphemistically to my mind, but that's <laughs> what they call it. And I think, you know, your face is data and, and you're, I think there's, there's a couple of things wrapped up in that. It's, I guess my main point would be, if you start out as a business with a really clear articulation of what your purpose is as a business, yes, you're there to grow and make money and create careers for people and sustainable and well-paid jobs, in my view. But what you're also there to do, you will have a customer mission, right? You will you will say, this is what we're here to do for you as our customers. So if you can articulate that and then articulate how that is actually operationalized in your business. So there are things that you won't do as things as well as things that you will do. And I think it's particularly important with technology because what I would see is and say to people is that increasingly uncritical acceptance of technologies and the claims made about them I think that era is really rapidly coming to a close mainly because as, as human beings we've had about 20 years of living with this stuff now yeah. and what works and what doesn't work and the unintended consequences and the stuff that you were referring to around human rights and um, oppressive uses of technology mm-hmm. and where's that data going? Which, by the way, again, just recently the head of MI6 has talked about a data debt and the dangers of the data debt because of interacting with Chinese um Uh, businesses and technology uh, technologies you know that is a real thing now and so don't make the same mistakes right be really clear on what you want the issues the problems the challenges Mm -hmm. in innovation world the jobs to be done for the customer that you're that you're seeking to to have a partnership with and matching that to what you will and won't do as a business who will you buy your data from who won't you buy your data from yeah how will you use data how does how does that um, actually cascade into the IT partnerships and the tech partnerships and the fintech partnerships that you're going to have um, to get your job done, which is you know to grow and to deliver great services and to deliver you know a return to shareholder?
0: Yeah, really interesting stuff. And again, it's you know ethics are a big part of the picture, aren't they? We totally. actually had a a, re- a recent, well, fairly recent episode with Clara girodier who talked through these exact issues. The idea, like you say, the idea of uncritical adoption of tech is is madness and then it's not just the, the case of like doing everything that you can do it's also you know something we discussed earlier we we're looking at the the difference between the the regulated and the unregulated space you you have got a huge amount of innovation happening now in the unregulated space yeah. and when we look at things from a financial conclusion perspective that is quite challenging isn't it because you've got things like blockchain allowing cryptocurrencies which in a sense you know and decentralized finance for that matter it is on the surface the democratization of investing but is it necessarily what we want to do for financial inclusion is it safe that's I mean, the thing it's isn't the first it thing, yeah. yeah
1: and and exactly is it really going to address inclusion now that you know that's a podcast in its own right and i'm probably not the best person to talk to about that although I, obviously as always ian i will have a view right <laughs> um but i think What I also think is really interesting, though, in in what I kind of see as the maturation of the fintech space, and also hopefully the growing, I want to say maturity, and I don't mean that to be patronising, the growing maturity of the regulators as well. That, you know, they've got a really difficult job. To my mind, they're not paid enough, they're not enough people, and there's not enough time to do the job that ideally, with our experience now, we would like them to do and so you talk about the unregulated space well that that's that's you know we both know that what we're talking about primarily there is the space that is here and now buy now pay later Mm -hmm. prepaid funeral plans crypto as you say that at the moment doesn't have a regulatory structure around it that concerns the hell out of me as you know because we've talked about this before yeah but i'm equally concerned about effective lack of regulation effective unregulated activities because the smaller firms that tend to be the tech enabled innovators, disruptors, fintechs, whatever you want to call them, you know effectively, they don't get regulated until they're at a size where you know they fit that okay, you're big enough now we, we, we've got enough people and time to be able to take a good look at you right and and that's a problem now my, I, I, I think I know that the FCA particularly is really starting to get active on this and also using technology to be able to do that, right? AI is going to allow them potentially to have a much better view of what's happening across a massive population of smaller businesses, but their impact is disproportionate to their size. And and I think there's an awareness there, but it, it needs to accelerate to my mind. And so I think when we're talking about unregulated and regulated, you're absolutely right. You know, it is very difficult for good actors to remain good actors if they if they're operating in a space where actually being a good actor fundamentally works against you hmm. rather than rewards you. And we've got to do something about that.
0: Yeah. So, so one thing I want to look at today is is the business models for financial advice, wealth management too, but but more so advice, because there's this idea of the the you know, minimum you know, viable client, right? So someone's got to have a certain amount of money. Uh, potentially under management for them to be worthwhile as a client. Now, w- one angle of this that's interesting, and, and I want to go into the business model aspect next, but firstly is you've got this huge swathe of the population that will not ever, or you know, maybe they'll get some pro bono advice from Citizens Advice or something like that, but they're very unlikely to ever actually speak to someone regulated and qualified about their finances so they're getting their education from youtube or TikTok or whatever which actually just some of it might be quite good to be fair we don't know um but yeah the flip side to that, is, as well it's not just that they're getting their education from there but the people that are reaching out to them the people that are targeting them are also going to be people selling get rich quick schemes it's going to be people selling things that are a bit exploitative and that's a problem. So, is what can we really do? Is it just inevitable that people are going to lose out, and and the kind of inclusion challenge is going to be made so much worse by the fact that regulated advisors and, and experts have no ability to operate in that space?
1: God, there's so much in there. Yeah, I,
0: I have a habit of asking six no, questions in yeah. one question. It's, mean, it's, it's a bit rude. But but <laughs> it's not rude. But it also <laughs> reflects the fact that
1: this is a, this yeah. is a very complicated it's got lots of different factors in it hasn't it yeah so i think i think the inevitability of chunks of people just not wanting to pay for advice i would question that right and i'm i'm not alone um you know th- i i was very interested by some recent analysis by by Royal London that basically identified in the uk 39 million people who currently don't access paid advice but when they looked at it on a number of criteria, you know, convertible assets, you know, the whole, the way that financial advisors would look at this. Actually, they're not a closed market, and there are understanding the drivers, again, in innovation language, you know, the drivers there that are, that are getting in the way or the obstacles that are getting in the way. You can actually not only put some language around it, you can put some market sizing around it, according to, to Royal London, right? And, and I thought this was really interesting because it was breaking down the issue of the gap, and the opportunity gap, right? Well, maybe opportunity gap's the wrong word, but you know what I mean. There's a gap there and it and it could be filled, right? <laughs> so what, what were the keys that their analysis came out with for actually doing something about that? Well, actually, there were some very sensible things that you don't have to feel like you want to be living on TikTok to be able to do, right, as a financial advisor and and the problem that i can see there i mean i agreed with with all of them actually i thought they were very sensible not necessarily in the order that they put them in but very sensible the problem is that some of these things are not quick fixes right so so education if if people don't really understand what advisors do you know selling 101 if i don't know what you can do for me why why would i buy from you right If everything I know about you from wherever, from whatever source I've got it, suggests that all you're interested in, actually, is selling me more stuff and your stuff, well, you know, any sane, rational person is... It's going to go. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to be sold to. I mean, it's a bit like double glazing, really, isn't it? In the bad old days, you're probably too young to remember it, Ian. But you know, it was a byword for trying to sell people stuff they didn't they didn't want in a bad way previously. Yeah,
0: I do have a vague recollection of it, for what it's worth. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. All right. Thank you. You let me off the age uh, hook there. So, so some of the suggestions there are around using the fact that you know, you you you. As advisors, and and I I think I really do believe this, you know, one of the key learnings from from this next wave of fintechs is this, let's see people as people and really understand that everything about their lives is intimately connected with their finances and, and vice versa, right? Now, it sounds really obvious, but it's something that's been pretty much ignored across the whole of financial services forever,
0: yeah. Million, right. And,
1: and once people got excited about technology, there was even less reason to go to the trouble yeah. of trying to understand humans. Well, right? I think
0: it's, it's funny because we're talking about inclusivity, but a lot of, you know, I, I'm i speaking very broadly here, but a lot of financial services have been built purely on exclusivity, jargon, you know, long words, uh, <laughs> things that will confuse people and make you sound intelligent if you're talking about at a dinner party. And yeah. I think that's <laughs> partly the problem that we have. Um, yeah, we need to explain things in simple terms. It's as simple as that.
1: Well, every tribe has its lingo. Yes. And everybody wants to feel special about what they do, right? You know, the lovely Matt. Yeah.
0: Uh, you so know, yeah, yeah. He, he, he that's will that's have Matt, his... our, our, our sound engineer for today. Yeah. Hi, Matt.
1: I hope you don't feel patronised by me saying lovely, Matt. I just, he is lovely, really nice. He is lovely You know, he's a technical dude and we're surrounded by technical stuff and he will have his technical language. So far, so good. But when Matt was telling me what he needed me to do as part of his technical setup, he said, don't trip over the wires, make yourself comfortable and I'll move the mic for you. He did not attempt to talk to me in a way that he would talk to another sound engineer or you know, whatever you do, right? Matt, whatever whatever label you put on it. Sorry, that sounded a bit rude. I didn't mean it like that. So I think <laughs> it's not about dumbing down. It's not about simplifying. It's about realising that what you're trying to do is you're trying to have a conversation with someone who isn't you mm-hmm. and who is not going to go on a course and learn about CAGR or IBITDA or whatever the lingo we want to chuck in, Fama or RDR or what have you, right? So I think it's about... You know it's recognizing that you want to have you want people to trust you. You know we talk about information disclosure as the part of the well, actually, what you're asking people to do is tell you the ins and outs of their life. When you're asking them to what are your investment goals and what's your risk profile? actually, what you're asking them to share with you is what terrifies the shit out of you, and why is it that you need that money and when right and And increasingly, as we know, you know, that's going to be about long term care. It's going to be about social care. It's about leaving something for your kids. It's going to be about, you know, just not having to be on the breadline when you're, you know, whenever it is that you have to stop working for whatever reason. These are deeply personal things, deeply personal. And so that's that is about building trust. And so how do you do that? that's a human thing
0: yeah start with a problem isn't it i suppose it, like you say if you if, if you, that's why credit companies do so well you need money okay here's so how you get money yeah whereas yeah financial advice isn't always that easy to simplify because people are approaching it for different reasons there are different yeah. approaches that you might have i mean an obvious one might be make sure you retire safely but that's not always a very punchy message is it it's well you're
1: right i mean and again you know certain life stages um you know, th- there's a lot attached to that. Who wants to think about being old and having to be in care? Yeah, Nobody yeah, wants it's not, to think not glamorous, about that. that is it? You don't want to think about your mum or your brother or or anyone you love being in the situation where they can't be to our minds themselves, mm-hmm. right? However, you know, particularly with uh, later stage and retirement, I, I think I mentioned to you before, there is such a thing as age tech now. You know, this is a whole area of we don't have to give up here. A, you don't have to be super rich and B, you don't have to think there's only one option. You know, going into a home or staying at home and not being, and being all on your own and and reliant on the Salvation Army who are brilliant, doing their thing for you a couple of times a year. You know, I think we've got to catch up as a society um, with there are options developing now, right? I'm not saying everything's sorted far from it, but I think just understanding the personal motivations and the complexity and I think a lot of financial advisors do kind of know this is deeply uncomfortable for people they don't want to talk about it and so it's really well known isn't it that that it's really we've got to try and help advisors and they've got to help themselves to feel more comfortable about talking about stuff that isn't just about the safe space of this plan or that plan because we know actually that's not what customer really wants Mm. and it actually doesn't get the amount of information and insight that the advisor really ideally would need to do the best job for their customer Mm. so i think you know that instinct of advisors i i I like to cling to this ian i i I might you know be wrong but i do think that the majority of people that go into this type of financial services and i am talking about insurance as well you know actually they want to do a brilliant job for their customers fundamentally so if we work on that basis then how do we How do we give people tips and tools and insight to help themselves? But also, as you've pointed out, how do we change the structures that we're operating in to make that easier and and better and and more applicable to more people? Because, you know, the research that I'm looking at from the Royal London that I referred to indicates that it's not that there isn't a a fairly significant market of people who could afford, who have. Yeah. The, ap- the entry criteria, if you like, there are other factors at play here, right?
0: Yeah, the, me- the messaging is just not quite right, is it? I mean, I-, I actually put together a documentary on this a couple of years ago, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Which people can can watch, it's on YouTube, on the Citywide channel, purely because I think people should get- seek out financial advice or or, or some form of-, of guidance, but people don't know where to look, people don't know. You know, when-, when that moment happens, sometimes the financial, you know, regulated world is the last place people go to. So it's a, it's a completely bizarre problem, and one We could probably fix quite easily, and just by speaking to people in terms they understand, and you know, using APIs to fix the UI and the UX, right? So yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, you know, no, (laughs) I think that's
1: a good point, right? Because what you don't want to do. It's make it any more difficult than it needs to be. And the trust is about can I d- does it take me five minutes to do this or does it take me three days and you need to have a DNA test to believe I am who I am, right? Yeah. So there's there is that level of functional trust. But then there's also the personal trust that advisors are, are really well placed to develop and, and and give. And then I think there's the systemic trust, isn't there? There's the is the system going to protect me if I'm talking to this person, have they have they been are they appropriately qualified are they regulated are they looked at you know can i trust them through other systemic um, avenues as well. And those three things really have to work together, don't they?
0: Yes, they do. Uh, and, and let's look at that the last part of that question. We'll, we'll finish up with this because this is something that I find really fascinating. It's the the idea of the business model for financial advice not being viable for people who don't have much money. And you know, we were at the um, well yesterday. And I'm saying this on December the first. This event, this uh, podcast actually goes out just before Christmas. Uh, but we were we're talking at the fintech forum, Citywise, a fintech event in Shoreditch, uh, about the the business needs. Uh, for advisors and wealth managers and why so many people don't receive a service and and again if you only have limited resources and a limited number of advisors why would you spend your time seeking out clients that won't make you any money I mean we're at a point where at the moment to serve people who in financial need is, is probably more of an altruistic and a you know philanthropic act than any kind of business thing but You know, the trends that we were discussing at that event, things like automation, again, things like APIs, things like cloud computing that will help us build the infrastructure, things like low and no-code software that will help people to build uh, solutions people more easily, I think we're getting towards a point now where, should you want to, you could create a more automated service and potentially service that lower end of the market in a more profitable way, bring financial inclusion to the table in a way that does at least make some money for someone. So, Sean, I... I want to know what your thoughts are on that. Do you think it's achievable? I, I, we're clearly not there yet, but do you think it's a, a road worth going down to try and create this? You know, it's not the same business model of what we've got now, right? But a different business model which allows mass adoption of, of financial advice.
1: It's such a, it's such a fascinating, interesting, and really important question. I mean, it's not just an intellectual kind of, you know, intellectual bit of masturbation, is it? It's actually really, <laughs> really important. That we find some answers to this, and I see some direct parallels actually again with the world of insurance. So I'm going to split your question into two. My answer to your mm-hmm. question into two parts. Okay, is does it make sense to build a market, to build your market, by going to places where the majority of your competitors appear not to be interested at the moment? Well, kind of from a business perspective if you can do that as you say utilizing the technologies that we have available now that are safe and secure and verified and you know they're not fly by nights Mm -hmm. um lots of the people that you were that you had at your event yesterday those sorts of people can really take do the heavy lifting the stuff that you couldn't possibly have done you know five years ago even maybe even three years ago actually ian or two so you can automate you can streamline you don't have to spend thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds on your tech stack in the way that you used to have to do so that's a whole tranche of cost taken out that in theory should allow you to start to nurture those relationships with the underserved right which where are they well they are the younger people right um they are the people from 18 to sort of 45 ish in in the main and What's there's a really, you know, it's you're not doing this in in a vacuum because over the past five years, budgeting apps have have had massive take up in the UK. So why is that important? Well, I think it's important because a whole tranche, a whole generation and a growing generation have got used to the idea that they want to know where their money is. They want to know what they're spending it on and they want to save, right, in a structured way. That is a real change. That work has been done for you by other people. So build on it.
0: Well, it's obviously a problem here. There is, there is a financial problem for a, a lot of people. And I think conditions are getting challenging for people as well. I mean, yeah. you, 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 know, you see inflation going up, wages relatively stagnant in some parts, house prices going up. So,
1: Well, I think this then comes back to, to something that you and I have talked about before as well, as, isn't it? It's about the language of um, how we define people who are overlooked and underserved or vulnerable as the regulator kind of describes it. I mean, I'm not talking necessarily about protected characteristics here, although that is important. The the fact of the matter is that before the energy prices went up and before inflation happened, but as COVID was impacting in 2020, the FCA stats told us that 65% of people who are in work are dependent on loans between paydays just to pay their bills. Mm -hmm. Now for me, that raises all kinds of issues about, well, they're not being paid enough, then, are they, as a starting yeah. point? But the fact remains, you know, that financial resilience for people in work, the you know, that's six out of 10 people in work, Ian. You know, they, they're in work, but they are on a knife edge of resilience. And that was before the energy price rises and inflation so we do have a problem,
0: yeah, and as the, well yeah. as a
1: massive business opportunity, right?
0: Absolutely. And in, if we can find a way to do it properly and effectively and get the right message out, that's that's quite something. Because right now, again, what, what you're competing against probably is people, if they're looking at the investment world at all, they're probably looking at cryptocurrencies. They're looking at these wild returns. No. And you know what? As much as you can kind of look at people looking for get-rich-quick schemes and, and kind of judge them for the, you know, grieve or whatever, a lot of the time it's probably people looking for... A way out there's people totally. you know they might look at what they might get from an investment portfolio and not be particularly impressed because it won't make a jot of difference to their life really
1: i we just just uh, th- this this does have a point so yeah go me. ahead sorry yes no 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 no. i mean i was about to share something we happen to be in a diy store i won't name them at the weekend buying some paint okay so as you do i was just talking to the young bloke behind um, the counter operating the technical paint mixing stuff what, wait, how long have you worked here? Three years. So are you going to carry on? No, actually, um, I am a crypto trader, and I'm going to go full. I'm going to go um, full time crypto trading. And he very proudly told me how much money he'd already made because he was proud mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. This young dude was about, I'd say, tw- twenty, twenty one, something like mm-hmm. that. Perfectly, you know, nowhere. This wasn't even London. It would count for some of your, uh, for your, some of your listeners as provincial. Um, <laughs> And to me, it was a real sign of the times, Ian, because you could have knocked me down with a feather. And yet I'm thinking, how many young people see exactly to your point, this is a way to have agency, to have job satisfaction and to make some money.
0: Yeah, and outside of a financial system that hasn't worked for them.
1: Totally. What's in it for them in the system that we know is safest for them, right, Mm -hmm. for us, but you can totally understand why It looks like a viable alternative, right? And it's scary. A
0: lot of the pros of decentralised finance can be found by looking at the cons of (laughs) regulated finance. Totally, Ian. And that, I think, is probably a good place to finish. Sean, look, thank you for joining us. I've had such a good time talking to you, as always. Um, Thank you again to everyone listening as well. This has been The Wealth Tech Show.